In this story, the Gentiles, there's Jews and the Gentiles, are welcomed into the family of God, which had been promised all the way back in the book of Genesis. But now in the book of Acts, this promise is realized. And this story that we've been looking at has been unfolded in three different acts up to this point, and there will be four acts as we look at today. It begins in Acts chapter nine with Peter healing in the pattern and power of Jesus two individuals on the coast of Israel. It continues with these visions that Peter had, as well as Cornelius had, that ends up in the third act bringing Cornelius and Peter together. Cornelius is a Gentile, Peter is a Jew. And in that third act, which we looked at last week, the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. It's the first time we see this in all history. This is what was promised in Genesis. And now in Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 10, we see it fulfilled. The last movement that we're looking at, or the last act of this story, is Acts chapter 11. And it's when Peter comes back to Jerusalem. He had been kind of wandering around. He healed in Joppa, and then he, um, I forget what, Lydda, Lydda, Lydda and Joppa. Then he goes to um, uh, Capernaum, oh gosh, wherever Cornelius was, that off the top of my head, I'm ad-libbing now. But he goes there, now he heads back to Jerusalem. And what we'll read today is the interaction that he has after he's been on this traveling um, circuit, watching this important act of God's redemption. So if you have your Bible, that's where we are in the story. And one of the interesting things that we'll see here is that the whole story is recounted in this one story. So here the reading of God's word from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentile also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. There's the word, there's Caesarea, that's where they were. Mm -hmm. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Now these six brothers also accompanied, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. That is, they stopped pursuing any kind of legal action against Peter. And I want you to see this. What is their response? They glorified God 
saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The story of Jesus is told in four different books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is what we call the Gospels. Now, it's one particular Gospel that I want to focus on very briefly this morning, and that is the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark begins with a bang. It doesn't talk about Jesus' childhood. It just talks about Jesus' ministry from the very beginning. The very first, uh, the first 13 verses of the Gospel of Mark consists of the prophecy of Isaiah being fulfilled, the baptism of Jesus by John, the going out into the wilderness and him being tempted by the devil, and then immediately at verse 14 and verse 15, we get the very first words of Jesus. And in those words, we have Jesus' first command. What is Jesus' first command according to the Gospel of Mark? Repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, Apostle Paul, taking you to another prominent New Testament person, right? Paul, the most prolific writer in the New Testament, visits with a group of Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He's bidding them farewell because he's preparing to go to Jerusalem and he anticipates that he'll never see these men again. Men who he has lived with, worked with, served, counseled, mentored. It's an intimate, intimate occasion in Acts chapter 20. And he gives them this long speech in that particular chapter. But there's something very profound about what he says about his teachings in Acts chapter 20. Now, you know, Paul, the one... I mean, I don't even know if this is like debatable. I think it's just conclusion. If you were to take who has been the most significant human being in world history, whose thought and word and word, like language and how he, who has influenced it? This is taking Jesus out of it, okay? Who is the most significant thinker, teacher in all the world? It's Paul. I mean, Paul's words have shaped our culture. You know that, right? I mean, it's his epistles that which, which we think through our, or the lenses that we think through. And this is not just you as a Christian. This is like non-Christians too. Paul has had such a significant impact. So how do we summarize Paul's teaching? Well, let's just look in Acts chapter 20. How does Paul summarize his teachings? Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 21. This is what he says about his teachings. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul summarizes his teachings. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith, commanded by Jesus. Repentance and faith, summarized as Paul's teaching. If Jesus commands it, and Paul summarizes his teaching with it, then thus it is vitally important for us to have clarity as to what repentance and faith is. Is it not? Look, we could spend time talking about faith, but that is not my purpose this morning. I want to focus solely on repentance. What is repentance? How does the Bible describe repentance? And I admit to you today, we're not covering it all in one sitting. We are only going to cover an important aspect of it. But in getting this, we have to see that this is one of the most important aspects 
of understanding Christianity. Let me, let me like let you behind the curtain as a pastor. In, in my life, personally, as well as my career as a minister of the gospel, I have found that there is a significant ignorance with regards to repentance. Many struggle to understand what Jesus means and what Paul says, and so they vitally misrepresent them and don't understand what it is that repentance truly is. And this is vitally detrimental to the church and to the individuals that make up the church. Here's what I mean. If we are ignorant of what repentance is, then we don't have the ability to do the very command of Jesus or to understand what Paul is saying. And if we can't do this, then we aren't going to reap the benefits that come as a result of it. Thus, we are disobeying the command of Jesus, misunderstand Paul, and therefore can be left in our sin. The understanding of repentance is so vital to the Christian that we've got to have clarity. If we don't have clarity, then perhaps we are left in our sin. So the question for you is, do you have clarity on repentance? Is it clear? Well, I want to take you to Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Because this is going to be the verse that we base this entire sermon on. You know, there's 18 verses, but we are focusing solely on verse 18. In this verse, one verse, we are provided with a very descriptive statement on repentance. It's not a comprehensive statement, like I said, but it is vital to a proper understanding of repentance. So let me recall to you what this verse says. It's a response of these Jews who were critical of Peter when he comes back. This is what they say when they finally hear from Peter what God was doing. They say this, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is not a statement on all the details of repentance, but it does provide us great clarity as to the foundation of repentance. Let me say that again. This one statement is not descriptive of the entire understanding of repentance, but it gives us incredible clarity as to the foundation of repentance. And it's this foundation that we have to see with absolute clarity if we are going to live and act as Jesus has commanded to us and understand what Paul means by repentance towards God. So how are we to understand the foundation to repentance? The answer is this in three movements. That repentance and understanding the foundation of repentance is seen in three movements. Indeed, repentance has three movements. And it's these three movements we're gonna unpack for you today, or I'm going to unpack for you today. So the first movement that I want you to see of repentance is this, that repentance is a movement of God. Peter had experienced this significant movement of God towards the Gentiles. He saw it with his eyes. And when he comes back to these critical Jews who are like, how dare you? How dare you eat with those unclean people? In verse 17, he summarizes what he experienced and how he understands it. And I want you to see this. Verse 17 says this. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? God gave to us. God gave to them. Who was I to stand in God's way? 
Of course, upon hearing this, the response of those criticizing Peter were silence. They stopped being critical of their statement to him. But then they glorified God. And look at what they say in light of what Peter had told them. Ah, the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So you see this pattern in this whole story. God gave to us. God gave to them. Who's I to stand in God's way? God has granted repentance that leads to life. Glory to God. Before repentance is anything else, it is first and foremost a movement of God. This is not often heard with regards to repentance, but we see this clearly in our text. Repentance is a movement of God. When I was um, in my first job as a youth minister at a church, I have this hero of mine. His name is Joe Novenson, and he's one of the greatest ministers, or pastors, I should say, preachers. That's what I should Preachers that I'd ever heard. And so when I found out that he was going to be speaking at a youth conference, I said, we are going to that youth conference, and my kids are going to hear Joe Novenson speak. And so we did. And one of the coolest things about being on this youth retreat is that youth pastors could sign up to sit down and talk with Joe Novenson about whatever they talk about. So you better believe, while the kids are swimming in the ocean and playing around, and I've got, I got people looking at them, okay? I'm not just like, yeah, 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 go, go swim in the pool and dunk each other. I signed up to meet with Joe. And we sat at this picnic table in Panama City, Florida. And I sat down, and I didn't know what to say. I was just kind of like a, such, I was like, oh, what do I say? It's, it's like a, you know, meeting your hero. What do you say? And I, I truly don't remember exactly what I say, but I do remember what he said to me. He said two things to me. He says, you need to get William Grinnell's A Christian in Complete Armor. And, and you need to read that. William Grinnell was a Puritan, and he wrote this book all on Ephesians 6 about what it means. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. And I walked right in after the meeting, and I got that book. But then he said the second thing to me. And again, I don't know why he said this. I, I don't remember. But he says, you know that repentance is also a gift. That it's God moving to you, right? And I was like, wait, repentance? Is God moving to me? Yeah, he's like, Acts eleven eighteen. Go read it. Okay. I read it. I said, wait, repentance is not me working? It's God moving towards me? Yeah. I, I was stunned. Have you ever seen that repentance is God moving towards us? God granting repentance to you and to me if you've repented? This is profound. That when you're compelled to, to, to repent, this isn't you like, you know, working up some emotion or whatever. It's actually God working in you. This is profound. And with this profound reality, I think there's some significant applications for this. Two at the very least, if not more. The first application of said, <laughs> um, uh, God being the first mover for us to repent is this. That if we have a propensity to doubt our salvation, like we're going, does God really love me? Has he saved me? We have to look at why we're asking that question in the first place. So, so often when we doubt our salvation, we're doubting our salvation because we're not doing what God has called us to do. We're not following the command. And so we're dejected. We're saying, how could I fail to obey this God who has given everything for me? And we start to worry, does God love me? Does God, does God, oh, 
I'm so heartbroken. How could I mess up? But what I want you to see is that the very doubt is based off of your works. It's not based off of God's work in you. It's based on your works. And so your repentance is based off of your work. And so your, your doubting of salvation is based on you. Doubt not your salvation because your salvation is never about you. What we should be thinking is this, when we sin and our heart is cut to the quick and we go, ah, how could I sin? We should go, but I'm cut to the quick. God is at work in me. He has not let me go. And so he hasn't let me go. I can be assured that I'm his and I need not fear whether I'm in or out of the kingdom of God. I'm in the kingdom of God because repentance is always God's moving towards us. And so we can be assured that we are his. Doubt not our assurance that comes when we repent. It should cause us to rejoice. God is the first mover. The second is similar to this, but it pertains more to how we interact with our friends, maybe our children, whoever, that we long to know that, that, that they too can have the assurance of salvation. It's the same thing that I face for many of you. I long that you know the great salvation of our God. And there's this temptation when, when we long for other people to know that, that, that there's so much pressure on us. And here's what I mean. We've gotta say the right things to them when, when they're questioning, or we've got to, we've got to do the right things. Or we, like everything has got to be perfect so that they can see with clarity who God is. If we don't have clarity, well, then they're certainly never going to come to know Jesus and the gift of his gospel. That puts a lot of pressure on us. But when we understand that God is the one who moves, we can understand that God can strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. I, I, I vividly remember this. I'm not a huge fan of street preaching. I'll just, I'll just be honest. Oftentimes, the manner and the method of street preaching is just, yeah, I don't like it. But I remember sitting in this class on evangelism seminary, and our professor started talking about, hey, the, the validity of street preaching. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna listen to this. And there were about 30 people in the room, and he said, I want you to raise your hand if your life was deeply touched by street preaching. And I sat there going, yeah, I'd like to see this. And about six hands went up. Now, that's 20% of the class that were saved because they heard a message from someone on the street proclaiming Jesus. It's a method that I don't like. Yet God can strike a straight blow with a crooked stick because it's not about the right message. It's about God being the first mover. So here's where it applies to you and me. Don't fear what you say or how you say it. Just say it. It is far better to say it than to not say it at all. I think, I think it was D.L. Moody who was criticized for his evangelism method and he looked at the person criticizing them and he said, you know what, I like the way that I do it better than the way that you don't. <laughs> if God is the one who moves and leads to repentance, then he can use crooked sticks like you and me. So we gotta say it. 
we've got to have clarity that repentance is first a movement of God. It's clear from this text. This is, this is part one of this foundation, that God, God is the one who brings repentance. But it leads me to this second piece, and this is more inferred than it is implied, than explicitly stated. But if, 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 if repentance is a movement of God, then, then it's also a movement of grace. Repentance is a movement of God, it's also a movement of grace. You, you kind of see this played out. Peter comes back to Jerusalem after he's been on this journey throughout other parts of, of Judea. And of course, he's encountered the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles. And he had to be on this spiritual high. And, and, and it's so easy to think that that spiritual high could be snuffed out in just a moment. Because he comes back, he's like, oh gosh, I gotta deal with these people again. Here we go, they're criticizing me about all this stuff. But he doesn't take it as much. No, their criticism he just sees as an opportunity to proclaim what God has done. Of course, what Peter did was a no-no to Jewish Christians. It broke laws, and it made uh, it broke laws that make it what what seemed to be you know, to be impossible to be with God because you're breaking those laws. It, it seemed to stuff on those. Like they didn't quite understand all of the significance of what Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. They didn't quite understand all of this. But Peter's testimony counters their understanding that God does indeed de deal with Gentiles. Yes, something that Jesus did changed the way that God dealt with the Gentiles. They just couldn't grasp it at this time. And if you want to know the greatest struggle of the early church, it was on this issue. This is the greatest trial in the early church, the Jewish-Gentile distinction. I mean, Paul writes a whole book in to the Galatians on this subject. And in that, he criticizes Peter, who saw the Holy Spirit fall on the Gentiles, and yet he's going back to his old ways. I mean, this is like crazy. Why? Because they wanted to base their relationship off of works and not on grace. <laughs> if God is the first mover in our repentance, then it's always a movement of grace. These Gentiles, what we can see clearly is that these Gentiles did not merit the forgiveness of sins or the presence of the Holy Spirit. They were not law-abiding people. They just simply received it. And they received the repentance because God was gracious to them. God grants repentance because he is gracious. This precious gift is not because anything they wanted. It is by grace. Repentance unto life is a movement of God's grace. I found this story to be, be um, quite profound, and it, it's gonna pertain into what I'm gonna preach on in two weeks, which is a more, more like description of what repentance unto life is. Uh, this story, and I don't, I don't include this story into um, my message on Luke 15 that'll come in two weeks, but this story comes from a, a, a missionary to Africa, and this missionary to Africa goes to his, the people that he's teaching Luke 15 to. And the Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son? He says, Dad, I want all my money. I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna go. And he spends all his money living wildly. Then he comes to his senses, and then he goes back home, and then the father shows him great mercy. So the, the, the African missionary teaches on this story, and he asks his students in Africa some of the details of this story. And one of the things that he notes that the African students always mention 
is this statement. Now a severe famine arose in the land. Now as Africans, they might have to deal with famine. And so what he says is this. Now when I teach the Americans, you want to know the detail that always gets left out? The severe famine. Americans who don't consider their food. He's like, it's astounding to me that the famine by Americans is always left out. And what's his point? His point is this, that in the famine, God's grace was going to the younger son, that it was leading to the end of himself. And yes, it took some time because he'd ended up putting him in a pigsty where he had to eat stuff that the pigs ate. But it was the very famine, the gracious act of God in pursuing the young son that brought him to the end of himself. It was a famine, a gracious famine that came upon his life he didn't deserve it, but he got it. We don't think of suffering as a grace, but oftentimes suffering is a grace. It's a grace that leads us to repentance. God does not have to act towards you in any sort of way, but he graciously does. And sometimes he even brings suffering and difficulties into our life to bring us to the end of ourselves to see that God indeed is the one who works. We have to see this. Repentance is a movement of grace. It's not a movement we can manipulate in ourselves or therefore it becomes a propensity for churches and us to see repentance as a work. Repentance is a grace. Repentance is a gracious gift from God and not a movement of, war our, of our behalf. It is always of grace, God moving in our life. Do not forget it. That when God works in us and moves in us and pricks our conscience and awakens in us not only our, our acknowledgement of our sin but of his mercy, it is a grace, it is a grace, it is a grace. And my friends, the only response to this is to rejoice. I, I'm not sitting here telling you, all right, now you gotta go. No, my only thing to tell you is look to our God. <laughs> he is gracious. He is abounding in steadfast love. If he is moved in your heart, take your eyes off of yourself and put them on the gracious God who's moving towards you, not because of anything you've done, not because of the laws you kept or haven't kept, but because he is gracious to you. Put your eyes on him. Repentance is a movement of grace. See, it's vital that we understand this foundation of repentance, that it is a movement of God and therefore a movement of grace. But there's one last movement of repentance that we must see that brings us clarity on the question. And that is this, that repentance is a movement of salvation. Repentance is a movement of salvation. Consider once again these Christians and how they understand God's gracious movement in granting the Gentiles repentance. What did they say? To the Lord has God brought the Gentiles to repentance that what? Leads to life. Repentance unto life. Do you remember what Jesus told the people that were gathering around him in John chapter 10? He says this, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have what? Life and have it abundantly. Zoe life, not bios life, not life that we're living, but abundant life, this life that is meaningful. It's life that is salvation. Through repentance, 
the very gift that he's given to us, it leads to our salvation. Do you know that? That repentance is the very means by which we experience the salvation that Christ has purchased for us. And this is a gift. It always leads to life. Paul said this, I am confident of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That the repentance that is started in you will indeed end in salvation for you. So if you doubt your salvation, doubt no longer. You will be saved. There's a beautiful story in the Old Testament, a story that many of us know. It's the story of Jonah. Jonah disobeyed by going to Tarshish after God had told them explicitly, you need to go to the Ninevites to communicate them to the grace of God. The Ninevites were terrible people. They were not Jewish. They were outside of the covenant family of God. But Jonah decides, nah, I'm out of here. I'm going as far away from Nineveh as possible. Now you know the story. He gets on the boat and the sea just starts rocking and rolling. And they try to row their boat back to shore to, to save themselves, but they couldn't. And Jonah knew exactly why. He said, guys, it's me. Toss me overboard. The judgment needs to come onto me. Of course, they throw Jonah into the sea, do they not? Jonah falls into the sea, but the next thing that the book of Jonah has is actually a prayer of Jonah. And do you know why there's a prayer of Jonah? Because a fish came and ate him. <laughs> he said this, and I'm gonna quote extensively. It is Jonah chapter two, verses one through nine, and I'll, I'll read verse 10. And I want you to see all of this summarized here. This is what Jonah says in the belly of the fish. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now, how did he bring his life up out of the pit? It was the fish. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then what happens? The Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Repentance unto life. It's a means by which God brings salvation. To those of you who have repented, you too will be spit out of the mouth of a fish and your feet will hit dry ground. That when you die, life is not over. In fact, it's just beginning. Because repentance, <laughs> it's a movement of salvation. And your feet are going to hit the ground again. So my friends, rejoice. The movement of God, which is this gracious movement, is a movement unto salvation. 
And we can have hope and joy and peace no matter what our life faces. I want you to be in step with our Savior, to repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. I want you to understand the teachings of Paul, that you might know the salvation that comes as a result of it. But it begins with the foundation of repentance, that that repentance is a movement of God, and this movement is incredibly gracious, but it's a movement that leads to salvation. Repentance begins there. And I look forward to continuing to unpack further what repentance looks like in two weeks. But it begins there. It's a movement of God, a movement of grace, a movement of salvation. Would you pray with me? We give thanks to you, O Lord, for this great salvation that you have brought us. Salvation, we say, does indeed belong to you. That when we repent, that when our conscience is pricked and we recognize our sin, it is actually you moving in us. It is you bringing us to yourself. Yes, Jonah didn't have any, any ability to tell the fish, swallow me up and save me. No, the fish had to swallow him up and save him. Same with us. And we are so grateful for your spirit that comes upon us, that awakens in our heart the reality of our sin and the beauty and the wonder of your mercy and your grace in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, may our hearts reflect this truth in abundance of praise. May we not rejoice in ourselves what we have done or not done, but may we rejoice in the salvation that belongs to you and that has been given to us. Oh, this is important, Lord. I ask, oh Lord, that you would grant us this clarity.